Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from scripture will inspire and encourage you. We continue to explore the historical context in the book of Daniel. In this episode, we'll look at the infamous fall of Israel. In response to the heartbreaking exile of God's people, Daniel stewards his talents with courage and wisdom. He masters the new culture while remaining holy and set apart. But it's not Daniel alone. He is guided by mentors, disciplined by wise counselors who gave him the strength to endure the unique challenges of exile. I'll just review a little bit. Daniel's going to give us an overview of human history from this point forward. Of course, the Bible has already been written to this point that gives us the history of past So let's just do the past, and then we'll talk a little bit about the future at the time of Daniel. So Daniel's written in the Babylonian period, the exile period, which began at 605 B.C., which is when the first capture took place, the first siege of Jerusalem. There are actually three sieges that took place, 605, and then another one in the middle of 586, and 586 B.C. is when... There was The whole place was decimated and hundreds of thousands of people killed and basically Israel was made a vacant lot. So that's, that's the time period that we're in here and Daniel is, is growing up in uh, Babylon. What's happened before then, you know, is Genesis, of course, Abraham being the key character, roughly 2000 B.C. And then Moses, the next main character, roughly 1500 B.C. And then you had the period of self-governance where the people went into the land and they had rule of law, consent of the governed, and private property, three pillars of self-governance. And they did that for a couple of centuries and then decided uh, we want a king. And God told them, I'm going to judge you by giving me what you asked for, which is one of God's primary ways that he judges us is by giving us what we ask for. And so they ended up with kings, and of course you know it started off okay, and that's roughly 1,000 B.C.s when the monarchy begins. And then it ends up dividing very quickly into Israel, the northern ten tribes, and Judah and Benjamin, the southern two tribes. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in and capture Israel, and they're no more. They, they disperse to the earth, really never came back together until in the 20th century, 1948. And then... Judah and Benjamin are threatened by the Assyrians, and maybe you remember Hezekiah getting the uh, guy speaking over the wall, and they say, don't talk to us in in Hebrew, use Aramaic so everybody can't hear you, and the guy uses Hebrew because he wants everybody to be scared, and Hezekiah goes and puts the, the letter before God and says, what do I do? And of course, Hezekiah had built a tunnel to bring water into the city. You can still go through that tunnel today, Hezekiah's tunnel, if you go to Israel. So one of the more amazing archaeological finds in Israel. But God fought on behalf of Hezekiah, and the Assyrians did not take Israel. But here we are now, and the Babylonians are going to take Israel. And Dave went through the prophecies of Jeremiah, who is one of three prophets during this time period. Jeremiah was a primary prophet telling people, if you don't repent, you're going to be invaded. And the specific thing he wanted Israel to do is very interesting. Keep your contract your uh, treaty with Babylon don't trust in Egypt that's one of the main things God tells Israel after they leave Egypt with Moses don't ever come back to Egypt don't trust in Egypt you're always going to be inclined to go back to Egypt the strong power of the earth at that point in time don't do it well of course they rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and 
Nebuchadnezzar comes in and sieges them and takes people back. The first wave, they just take rulers, young men with great capabilities to put in his court, among some other things, some treasures and so forth. But Israel doesn't learn the lesson. So that's the historical context up to this point. And then Daniel is going to roll out and say, here is human history from this point forward. So it's very much a companion book to Revelation. There's a very significant difference in that in Revelation we're told we're supposed to see these events and understand and do. Hear, understand, do. And of course the main point we took from that that Revelation makes is no matter what happens in the future, no matter how crazy things get, God's still in control. He authorizes everything that happens. And he just wants us to do one thing, and that's be a faithful witness in the face of death. Any kind of death, rejection or persecution, any, any kind of resistance, just be a faithful witness. And that was kind of the story of Revelation. Daniel's a little bit different in that it tells us what human history is going to be. But instead of saying, understand from this, it kind of implies that people really aren't going to get this for a while, at least the part about being at the end times. But it gives us Daniel, who is an amazing example of what it means to be an overcomer, which is what Revelation wants us to do. A Nikeo, a victor, a conqueror, a winner, somebody who accomplishes in life what God gave us to accomplish. And so... It's really the same message and the same format as Revelation and not surprisingly has a lot of overlapping prophecies. So we're going to get into that soon as to what future is going to be and we're going to get the same basic forecast of what the future is going to be multiple times. But let's just dive in here. I think Dave stopped in verse 8 and we'll overlap there. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year 
of King Cyrus. Now this has stories in it that we're very familiar with. This, you get this in you know, elementary school and Sunday school. That doesn't mean it's not still an incredibly impactful story, but it does mean it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, well, you see what's happening here. But we will spend a little time looking at some things here and, and seeing what we see. First of all, let's, think, let's look at the eunuchs. So I looked at this word eunuch. It actually means like officer of the court, from what I can tell. The translators are actually bringing in a historical knowledge that the people in the court during this era, in this realm, tended to be castrated males, eunuchs. So that, that's an, actually an interpretation. It's not an unreasonable interpretation, though. And if it is the case that Daniel worked for the chief of the eunuchs, it stands to reason that he would be himself a eunuch. Now, if we think about this, let's just put ourselves in Daniel's place. So you're living in Israel, and everybody around you is telling you, Jeremiah's prophecy cannot happen because we have the temple. I think Dave read that last week. Oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. Do not say the temple, the temple, the temple. Because what they were saying is, look, as long as God's temple's here, he's going to protect us. So we can do whatever we want to do. So we've got his temple. And it was the same type of thing that they did earlier with the ark. You know, we'll carry the ark out and it will protect us. And God's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not a spirit that can be conjured up by something that you control. That's not how this works. And he tells them through Jeremiah, this is not the way this is going to operate. But that's what everybody else is saying. And in fact, when Jeremiah comes and tells them that's not the way this works, he's abused. And in fact, that he has to be protected. So you're hearing that all around, and then suddenly Israel falls. I'm sure a lot of people concluded that, hey, God doesn't protect us. God didn't keep his promise. I'm sure that was the uh, interpretation of many. And then... He gets captured and pulled out of his house, taken a thousand miles away to another country that he's never been to and doesn't want to go to. He's castrated. And then he's immersed in a foreign culture and university. You know, statistics are well known about what happens to Christian kids going to universities in our culture today. And they're going to a university where there's Campus Crusade and there's all kinds of things that you can join that will help you maintain your faith. And a large percentage of them still fall. But they weren't yanked out of their home, captured. Everything they were told about God by the dominant culture turned upside down, castrated, and then forced into a foreign culture. So you put yourself in this guy's shoes. Instead of saying, hey, God let me down, why should I serve him? Well, that's the natural response, right? Instead of saying that, he says, now how can I maintain my purity here? And he goes to the chief of the eunuchs and he says, hey, is there a way that I cannot defile myself because I have this belief system? And the chief of the eunuchs is sympathetic. Did you catch that? He says, well, yeah, I'm for you, but I have to make a fundamental choice whether to accommodate your beliefs or keep my head. And, you know, I'm going to choose my head. Because the king might find out his orders weren't obeyed by seeing you and I'll lose my head. Now, this tells us a lot about how things operated in Babylon right there, doesn't it? And we'll see soon that God is going to call Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. He's going to be the example of the greatest of kings. And the way God describes that is, you are over everything. And, and he was. He decided who lived and who died. He decided who prospered and who didn't prosper. And we're going to see that it was kind of amazing. He had this incredible power, but he's actually a really wise leader. He might not have been all that empathetic of a leader, but he got results. If you don't do what you're told and you lose your head, you know, that's a real clear reward system, isn't it? So then Daniel got turned down. 
So the next thing he does is goes and appeals to another guy. This time it's not the chief steward. It's the guy that works for him, his immediate boss. So he went first to the vice president, now he goes to the manager. And he goes to the manager and he knows that this guy can't really make that decision, but he can make a smaller decision. Will you agree to a test? Now, see, this is not such a big stretch, right? Anybody can look bad for a little while. And so he goes and says, would you give us a test for 10 days? Now, this word test is an interesting word. Guess when the first time it shows up in the Bible? It's Abraham and Isaac. It's in Genesis 22.1. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Interesting, isn't it? So Daniel, I'm sure, knew that verse, and he knows what a test is. And he uses the same basic term. Give us a test, 10 days. 10 days is a time in the Bible that seems to be a testing time. In fact, we saw it in Revelation. I'm going to test you for 10 days, he said to the persecuted church. Test us for 10 days and just see. And then you decide. We'll leave it up to you, whoever looks better. Because he he took some wisdom from what the chief steward told him, right? What's the chief steward's main concern? How they look. So he's like, okay, how we look's the big deal. So let's do a test. And at the end of the 10 days, see how we look. And at the end of the 10 days, they look better. So they got what they wanted. Shrewd guy, huh? What would we have done, most of us? I think usually what most of us would do is whine. Isn't that, isn't that what we do as humans? Is whine? Well, you learn that as a child, right? You know, if you whine, you get paid attention to. And it kind of just never stops. It's kind of the way most of us do. But he's using wisdom here. He learns something, and then he adapts. He makes an appeal. This is actually a good thing you can do as parents. Teach your children to appeal instead of whine. Then, in verse 17, it tells us, For these four young men, God gave them some gifts. And these gifts are very interesting. He gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, the translators in the New King James, at least, did a really good job of keeping the same English words with the same Hebrew words. And this word knowledge is madah, however you say that, M-A-D-D-A-H. And it's the same knowledge that Solomon asked for. And this word skill is not in the list of what Solomon asked for, skill in all literature and wisdom, but it's an interesting word that shows up the first time in Genesis 3, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so looking through the different places where this word shows up, it seems to me like this word is like discernment. The ability to tell what's true and what's not, what's real and what's not real. So knowledge is, I think, knowledge. That's something with, that, that Solomon asked for and had. And the skill in literature and understanding is more like discernment. I can read this literature and I can tell what's true and what's not true. I can pull out of it what's true and what's not true, which we will see again in a second show up. And then wisdom is the same word that you see in Solomon, Solomon asked for. I want knowledge and wisdom. And God comes and says, because you asked for wisdom and not and knowledge and not riches, I'm going to give you both. And then this understanding and visions and dream, this word understanding, is used in the description of Joseph. So think of it here. You've got one guy who's got the wisdom and knowledge of Solomon and the understanding that was embedded in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but from God's perspective... You know, God wanted us to have that understanding, just not that way, right? And the discernment of of, uh, Joseph, the understanding of Joseph in doing visions and dreams. What a guy, huh? Now, someone like that has that much giftedness. What usually happens to them? 
somebody that's amazingly gifted like that. Usually they either get really stuck up on themselves and live an entitled life, or they get lazy and underperform dramatically because they don't have to try very hard to get ahead, right? And that's, that's usually the two type of things we have. But look at Ezekiel 14.14. 14. This is a really important verse about Daniel. Ezekiel is prophesying. We'll start in verse 12 here. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, Son of man, that's the name that's used for Ezekiel, son of man. When a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. Cause effect. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. So the normal course for God is when there's righteous people in a land, he preserves the whole land because of those people. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. What illustration does he use of that, that we're supposed to be? Salt. Yeah, salt. A little bit of salt preserves the whole carcass, right? Dead carcasses taste really good when they're salted and cooked. And if you salt them, they'll stay preserved until they're ready to eat. And a dead carcass that's not preserved is about the nastiest thing on earth, isn't it? Well, our job is to have enough righteousness in a dead carcass world to preserve it. And God is looking for the time when it can be sacrificed to him, and he can like it. We're to be living sacrifices. That's part of what we're supposed to do. But in this case, God is saying, even if these three guys, Noah, Daniel, and Job, who are the, like the salt of the salt of the salt, I would just deliver them. That's how bad you've got. Now, what kind of company is that? Wouldn't you like to be in this list? You know, even if Joe, Alan, and Samuel, wouldn't you like to be on that list? He's in there with Noah and Job. This is the kind of character Daniel had. Even though he had this horrific event happen to him, where he could have doubted God, the temple, the temple, the temple, that's what they told him. He instead says, no, I'm not going to defile myself. And he got these tremendous gifts. And instead of getting stuck up, he persevered. Yes. Great point. We have Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah are the three prophets in this era. And so, yeah, you, usually you don't honor someone that's a contemporary of yours like this. You, you wait until everybody forgets all the bad stuff about them, right? <laughs> that's normally the way this works. And he's a contemporary. That is a great point, Brandon. Yeah, so he, this is an amazing guy right here, Daniel. And so the, the point of revelation that we've done, be a faithful witness and don't fear death, this is an illustration of what that looks like in a corrupt culture. So verse 18, then we go on down and we have this uh, time when he's brought in before Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is interesting too. We already see Nebuchadnezzar has a very definitive system of getting his commands obeyed. He's expected being obeyed. But notice that he doesn't just delegate everything. There's something that he's directly involved in. And that is picking the people that are going to run his kingdom. He's going to personally interview these guys. How many major companies have a CEO that actually interviews the people that are coming into his company? I don't think that's very normal. They usually have the human resources department do that. I just read an article recently that major company CEOs are going on campus to recruit, but they're not actually interacting with the guys making the decision. And here you've got Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to interview these guys himself to decide who's going to be in his administration. I've just started reading a book about CEOs that had companies that way outperformed their peers. 
And the thesis of the book is that the CEOs that are really, really successful, number one, are value-oriented. Uh, number two, they focus on investment decisions, capital allocation. Number three, they focus on personnel placement and training. That's the three things that those leaders do. You know where they could have gotten that from? Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll see, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the great men of the Bible. He doesn't start off so great, but there's not many people who have their letter published in the Bible because it's such a great testimony. And Nebuchadnezzar is one. You know how usually you have the famous uh, football player come give the testimony or whatever? And they always mostly say the same thing. But because they're famous, they get their testimony. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is in the Bible. That's who, that's who God asked to give his testimony. He's quite an amazing leader. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening. 